Juan Gonzalez is the original founder and first editor of El Tecolote, California's longest-running bilingual newspaper that is printed in both English and Spanish. This free bilingual bi-weekly publication was founded in 1970 at San Francisco State University's La Raza Studies Department after the Third World Strike Agreement. He reflects about the political climate in San Francisco's Mission District during the time of 1967 to 1972, and especially addressing the issues of youth empowerment in the mission during the founding of RAP. Juan Gonzalez on this extra of Rama Blueprints, Roots of RAP, Part 1, Imunio. I actually came to San Francisco in 1967 to go to San Francisco State from Stockton, California, which is a very conservative community at that time. And so coming to San Francisco was a really eye-opener, and politics were out there. There were already movements emerging. It's always been a nest bed of radicalism. So when I came up to San Francisco, it was really changed my whole perspective on life and what I was thinking of and what I believed in. I ended up becoming more engaged in my own self-identity and beginning to identify with the neighborhood, in this case, the mission, and was there during the strike. I supported the strike. I was studying to be a journalist. I continued to work on the campus paper because it was covering the strike, and I wanted to make sure that the coverage was going to be fair. I crossed the picket lines because I was working and not going to classes, but at, at least participating as a reporter to cover those stories. And I was the photo editor of the paper at that time, and it was called The Phoenix. And in many ways, I felt bad crossing the picket line. I always had to remind the, the picket, picketers, uh, hey, look, I'm doing this to try to ensure better coverage and trying to make sure that the newspaper is doing right by its coverage of what's going on and maybe even helping to tell the stories of the people who are demonstrating. So they respected that and they, they didn't bother me crossing the picket lines and knowing that what role I was playing. San Francisco State had various activities. The counterculture movement was on the campus and people were streaking <laughs> because that was part of the statement. There was anti-war movement that was emerging on the campus against the Vietnam War. And then of course, self-identity rights, people's rights and social justice movements in the community around housing and job discrimination and things of that nature were also spilling onto the campus. So when you look at the campus, every day there was speakers or some kind of activity that was making political statements of what was happening in the world around us. So I grew up again in a new environment and in my own sense of being and sense of understanding what was happening around me was certainly changed me dramatically over a time. Can you talk a little bit about that connection between the third world strike and the mission? At that time, that it didn't seem like anybody was against young people lashing out and making demands on the institution for bringing in more Latino students into the campus, opening up a, an ethnic studies program and hiring more Latinos in counseling and things of the nature. I don't recall anyone against it. And if anything, the uh, they're supportive, at least in signing petitions and, and at times even coming out for demonstrations when it called for bringing out the community you know, onto the campus. That was clearly evident that there was some strong ties made between the mission and the Third World Liberation Front. And it was very important because uh, the it, administrators need to know that it just wasn't young people demonstrating, but it was also the parents of these young people that supported their efforts and 
felt that their need was their need as well. St. Charles was oftentimes a place where the Latino students would meet out there. It's a little, a little sanctuary next to St. Peter's Church. They had the St. Peter's Hall then on one side and they had St. Charles Hall on the other side. And so the priest there who was very supportive of the strike is very progressive. You can always count on him to give space to people from the strike and to use his meeting places and stuff like that. So that was very important to have kind of have a home off campus that people can meet and discuss strategies and discuss whatever that tied into the strike. And so there was that kind of support. In those years, maybe like 67 to 72, during that time, you talked about all this youth leadership and demands that were being created by youth. Was that primarily Imunio and RAP feeding into that goal of self-determination for youth? I think that was part of it. You know, obviously they had their own issues in the mission with dealing with police harassment, needing summer jobs, and finding ways to express their culture. The free time that they had, there was not a lot of things for them to do, you know, so they hung out at, on 24th and Mission a lot because there were no activities for young people. And there were very few centers open to young people. So when Imunio developed that place, and I think eventually a RAP also was housed in the same building, even though it was small, it was still a center where young people could go and meet each other and socialize and you know, stay off the streets and they had a place to themselves. And I think that was really important because eventually that would send the message that there needed to be more resources for young people and more places where they can gather and not be in the, a target for the police to come in and break them up and arrest them and stuff like that. And I think by, by having that building, it was the impetus for creating other centers. So it just helped in terms of empowering youth to take responsibility for whatever is established to help them uh, become even better participants in the neighborhood and, and wherever else they need to be. I see the establishment of, of El Tecolote extremely important. I can understand that as a result of the strike and the agreements that there were some opportunities had opened. Can you talk a little bit about that first class? I had always thought as a young person, my career plans were to become a journalist. And I'd always envisioned working for the New York Times or Washington Post or Life Magazine, these major publications. And it's always good to think the big picture. That was kind of an ambition. But when the strike hit, living in San Francisco and now listening to the dialogue that was happening on campus in terms of social justice and what the college need to be more of than it was, was like a light bulb going off in my head saying, look, these people are saying some things that really have meaning. And it's not outrageous to be asking for increasing the admissions of Latinos onto the campus and opening up ethnic studies and, and bringing more financial resources to young people. One of the strikers approached me one time and his curiosity said, so you're a journalist. I said, yeah, I'm a journalist. So what are you going to do when you finally get your degree in journalism? What are you going to do with that? I said, well probably work for New York Times or go for some major publication like that. He says, have you ever thought of uh, using your skills to help your community? And I says, what do you mean? He says, well, you know, stories need to be told about, for example, what's happening in the mission. That's where a lot of Latinos live. And oftentimes they don't get reported on or if the stories come out in any of the media, it's always negative stories. And I think you have a very important skill to offer and maybe you can right the wrongs of the kind of reporting that's taken place in this very gray city. You ought to think about that. 
you know, and see maybe uh, you can apply those skills in those ways. And and let me tell you that that really sunk deep in me, you know. And I said, mm, I never thought of in those terms, you know, and that they had a skill that could really be a benefit to a very particular targeted population. Even though I grew up in a very Mexican neighborhood in Stockton, and my folks are very identified being Mexicanos. It never triggered that my skills was, would be that important. I did some soul searching and more and more I started thinking, you know, yeah, at some point in my life, I wanted to publish something. I mean, that was always part of my goal is maybe when I turned 40, I would publish a newspaper or something or a magazine. But when the School of Ethnic Studies was formed, when the strike was settled, I had took a course in community organizing. You know, and of course, who was teaching that course was Jim Queen. And I was among his first students in that class. And Ben Martinez was also the co-instructor at the time. And I was impressed by what they said about commitment, community service, serving the community, and how to go about it. And they would all oftentimes challenge us in terms of our own ideas. And like Jim says, he never wanted to tell you what to do. He wanted you to think about it and come with your own reasons for doing things. And and testing them. And his whole philosophy was theory and practice, theory and practice. You come up with an idea, you test it. If it doesn't work, you theorize again and you try it out because something finally works. And so I was impressed by that kind of thinking and what he had to say. We had developed a, an exchange in the classroom. I was probably one of the older students. He and Ben got to know that I was studying journalism and that was my last semester and that I would be graduating. When they formed the department, they approached me at one point saying, you know, we want to expand our program and we, we want to include something on media. Would you be interested in designing a media course or a journalism course in La Raza Studies, as they called it at that time? And I said, well, you know what? I've never done that. And he said, well, that's okay. Just put something there, put some ideas. You went through the program, you know what it is, and maybe tailored to the Latino community. You just put something idea, we can always massage it and get into the language that we submit to the curriculum committee. So I put it together and uh, they tweaked it and they generally liked what I put together and we called it La Raza Journalism, which is going to be a course talking about the media coverage of the Latino community and, you know, negativity and what kinds of stories need to be done. And then it's, another part of it was training those in the class how to write journalistically. And hopefully we can get stories published someplace based on what they're covering. And the coverage would be about the neighborhood, the mission community. So they submitted and it was approved almost immediately. Okay. And then they said, Juan, we, we want you to teach the course. And I said, look at, I'm just graduating. <laughs> I'm 20, 21, 22. I have no experience teaching. Don't worry about it. You know, we'll help you. We'll guide you. We'll, you know, we'll coach you and that kind of stuff. But we want you to teach the course because you have the knowledge of this. There was very few publications in the mission at that time. And most of them were more social publications, a lot of advertising, focusing on weddings and festivities and that kind of stuff. The one newspaper, La Nueva Mission, was folding. That attempted to cover uh, community, but it, it, the, the you know, United Neighborhood Organization, UNO, decided that they were going to go back into providing social services. And so they decided to, to stop publishing the newspaper. So there's very little going, you know. By the end of the semester, we started talking about, maybe it's not too late to think about starting a newspaper. 
I was thinking about starting one at the age 40, but maybe the, the time is right now. I was editor of my high school paper. I was editor of my community college paper. When I came to San Francisco State, you know, you get that little racism or little whatever. They, they don't think you could do it. And I said, hey, man, give me a chance. I was entered. I did all the stuff. And so finally, I just pushed them and said, look, if you're not going to give me a story, I want to do a five-part series on the Mission District. And the editor said, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead and do it. And I'll even take the pictures. So I did a five-part series on the mission, you know, for the education, the politics, the culture, that kind of stuff. And it got printed in each issue for five times. And I did the photo guide. But what was very crucial is doing that story gave me connections to people. So I got to meet people. They got to meet me. So when I started thinking about starting a newspaper with a staff I already had from the class and people I already knew, it wasn't going to be that hard. We just needed to raise the money. We were mindful. We didn't want to turn off people to the newspaper just by sake of the name. As we spent about two or three hours discussing names, somebody had said El Teclote, and all of us kind of stopped and said, yeah, that's a nice, nice sound, nice rhythm. The wise owl, the protector of the neighborhood, you know, all kinds of visions. So we settled with that name, and, and it's stuck ever since. Collectively, how did they viewed Tecolote's role within this struggle, within this movement or self-determination. How did Tecolote fit into that? It was a, something that was really important for the paper to define itself and define its mission to serve the community, to provide positive coverage of the community, to do consistent stories that would help people that live in the neighborhood to understand what's going on and how City Hall is creating some situations that are not helping at all. But we saw ourselves as a newspaper that was going to be kind of an activist publication, advocacy publication, that was going to be a voice for the community and provide stories that was going to provide some insight in terms of not only what's happening, but why it's happening. And maybe even call people to take some action. We were out there demonstrating with the community. We were out there in marches. We had our banners, El Tecolote kind of thing. And we made sure that, that we were constantly have a pulse of what was going on in the community and who was leading it and, and was it a good cause that they were leading. You know, sometimes people will misdirect people. And we were open to the fact that sometimes we would critical of some of the organizations that are out there speaking on behalf of the community when we thought that they were the way they were going about it was wrong. And we criticized them in the paper. And we didn't need just to be a mouthpiece for the movement, so to speak, but we also had to be a critical element to bring things up that we saw were not in the best interest of the community. We didn't have to do that a lot, fortunately, but there are times we did. But we knew that we were going to be involved and we were going to do that. And, you know, we already realized for a while that, you know, that we can't expect coverage of the mission from, from the Chronicle, the Examiner, or any of the TV stations, at least consistently. And the neighborhood is deserving of a consistent coverage of what's happening in the community, something that will not only bring them good information about what's going on, but also in many ways, bring them a sense of identity. But the newspaper, the kinds of stories and focus on the culture, it helps to crystallize that identity in that community. And, and so we, we saw that our mission was important and that we were dedicated to that. And I told people who worked on the paper, I said, look at, you know, we may be able to publish one edition, but that's not going to be enough. If our mission is to be a a permanent element in this community and be a something that's positive and it's going to be help the community. 
that we have to make a long-term commitment, you know? And I said to myself, I'll, I'm going to make a five-year commitment struggling in every effort to make sure that this paper comes out. Are you with me? And a number of them said, yeah, we'll stay as long as we can. And they did. And, uh, you know, it's not with a lot of struggles, but my five years turned into 10 years, turned into 30 years, turned into 40. <laughs> I'm still with it. Okay. But the challenge was there. And I think we were able to meet it with, obviously, with some stress and anxieties about whether we come out tomorrow, but we we're able to get through those tough times and fulfill our mission, which is still part of what we do today. The extra of the Rama Blueprints podcast are intended to help with a deeper understanding of the series as a whole. Thank you for listening to the extra of the Rama Blueprints podcast. And remember, to listen is to heal. All power to the people.